Let's turn now to Revelation chapter 14. We have been in Revelation. If you're visiting us today, uh, we've been going through the book of Revelation. We've been in chapter 14. This is the third week we're in it, and we close it up this morning. Revelation chapter 14, now beginning in verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. 1958 was not all that long ago. I was three years old, so see, it wasn't all that long ago. In 1958, the president of IBM Corporation was a guy by the name of Thomas J. Watson, Jr. And he didn't see much of a future for computers around the world. In fact, this is what he said, the president of IBM, quote, there is a world market for about five computers. Guess where I read that? The internet. I found that posted on my computer in the internet. Now here's the president of IBM who said, there's not a future worldwide for anything but maybe five computers. Back then, something that is such a present reality and common to us was seen as far-fetched. And that's sort of typical, isn't it? It's hard to envision what is coming down the pike until it comes down the pike. There's things like that in the book of Revelation. I mean, the idea of reading chapter 11, and here we have a story of two witnesses who are persecuted, get killed, get resurrected, and the whole world is able to see the event at one time. That's staggering. That is far-fetched a few years ago. Today it's like old hat, that's satellite television, no big deal. The idea of everybody on earth receiving a number to buy and sell a few years ago was outlandish. Today it's known that we depend upon numbers with the social security system and so many other systems where buying and selling without a number is not that far-fetched. Then there's words like Armageddon, fire and brimstone, judgment, that some people would snicker at or say is far-fetched. But more and more, those ideas are coming of age. In fact, I found out this week that just one Trident missile submarine has eight times more firepower than all of the bombs dropped by both sides in World War II. 
I found out this week, um, I was going through my concordance on the computer, the computer concordance, which uh, gives you a list of words in the Bible quickly, and you can find things rapidly. Um, but if you were to take and search phone books around the United States, uh, you come up with some interesting names, you know, names that uh, uh, are odd. Uh, they're funny, to say the least. For instance, if you did a search in Miami Beach or Castro Valley, California, there is the name in the phone book, Frank N. Stein. That's Mr. Stein's name. Frank Stein, his middle initial N, Frankenstein. Uh, other names in phone books the computer would reveal are words such as Robin Banks, Georgia Peach, M period T period head, so MT head, minivan is another one. I wonder what Miss Van drives. Uh, several women are listed in the phone book as sunny day, one is listed as happy day, and another as summer day. Uh, men's names include Phil Harmonic, Lance Boyle, and James Dandy. And then there are distinctive names whose names really only work when they're put in the phone book order, last name first, first name last. For instance, uh, Jack Cracker in the phone book is Cracker Jack. And uh, William Dollar is Dollar Bill in the phone book. Uh, Mr. Guy Wise is Wise Guy, and so on. Now, if you were to do a Bible search for key words like Armageddon, you'd only find it once. There's only one reference to the word Armageddon. It's not even here, though there is an allusion to it. But it's talked about so frequently as that last great battle on earth when the nations gather together in Israel and judgment takes place. But if you took other key words, for instance, the word judge is found 188 times in the Bible, judgment 190 times, judgments, plural, 122 times. Altogether, the word is mentioned over 500 times in the Bible, judgment. Then words like uh, angel or angels appear almost 300 times in Scripture. The word harvest or harvesting appears 71 times. And all of these concepts and most of the words are tied together here in these verses that we just read. Judgment, angels, harvesting. It is harvest time, the angels are involved, and it is definitely a judgment. These things are not far-fetched. We've already discovered that the day of the Lord, as it is called, the Great Tribulation period, is so detailed an event. The book of Revelation covers it in so many different ways. So many different shades of meaning are given in this section of Scripture. It is a day when God, though He has dealt with man in grace for so long, will put down the implements of grace and deal in wrath, in judgment. It's over now. It's, it's harvest time. It's time to move on to a whole new way of doing things. There was a couple that was driving, and uh, he was going a little too fast, and a policeman pulled him over, and the policeman said, after the window was rolled down, I'd like to see your driver's license. And so the guy pulled out his license, gave it to the policeman, hoping that he would incur some good graces and leniency. The man said, Officer, 
Do you notice that yesterday was my birthday? The policeman looked at the card and said, Well, yes, I did. In fact, yesterday was the day your license expired. <laughs> and he gave him then two tickets, speeding and having an expired driver's license. No grace. Now let's look at our text, verses 14 through 20. There's uh, three divisions. There's actually two. I've given it three just to set the stage. First of all, the harvest as a description. There are some key words in this text. The harvest is a description of what's going on. Secondly, a harvest of distinction, making a difference. And then uh, finally, a harvest where there is just destruction. That is the last vision. I want you to just to begin looking at verse 14 and uh, look at the description of the Son of Man that is given in the first few verses. He is sitting with a sickle in his hand, verse 14. Notice he's about to reap with that sickle. Verse 15, the reason is also given because the harvest is ripe. Move on to the second vision. You see that there's an angel with a sickle also. Verse 17, and this time grapes are gathered and thrown into a wine press. All of these are implements of a harvest. One a grain harvest, the other a grape harvest. Now all of this imagery of harvesting was very common to people who lived in ancient times, especially in the nation of Israel. They were common agrarians. They lived off the land. If you wanted grain, if you wanted vegetables, if you wanted fruit, you couldn't go to the grocery store. You had to grow it. If you wanted fish, you had to fish for it. They lived off the land. Their income, their way of life was tied to the land. The festivals of Israel, so many of them were agricultural festivals. You have the festival of Pentecost, ingathering, first fruits, all of them revolving around the agricultural seasons of the year, of sowing and reaping. Then there were the parables of Jesus Christ. He spoke in terms they could understand. He didn't talk about microchips, though if he were here today, perhaps he would. But he spoke about sowing, reaping, wheat, tares, agricultural stuff. The harvest, that's what people there were used to. Now when we think of harvest time, at least in our culture as Americans, it sort of brings romantic ideas to the mind. Leaves falling, winter coming, friends gathering, Thanksgiving. It's a time for the harvest, but the harvest time also has with it a, a serious note. That which is alive and grew is now dead and dormant. Things get cold and still. It's a little more ominous of a time, just as a season. If you were to ask the average Christian about what harvest means, they would say evangelism, probably. It's the time where we bring people in and harvest souls for Jesus Christ. And the reason we say that is because Jesus himself said of the crowds that were gathering around him in chapter 9 of the book of Matthew, he said, the harvest is truly plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And there is a wonderful harvest of souls. And it's a wonderful occupation to be involved in whatever occupation you have in life to win souls for Jesus Christ, to bring them into the kingdom, to harvest those souls as it were. But usually in the Bible, almost invariably. The idea of harvest 
has the idea of judgment. That's really what it is. It's an image of judgment upon the earth, a final judgment upon a nation, upon an individual, or upon the world. It's the reaping of the earth. Harvest time is judgment time. No matter what you have sown in your life, now comes the time to reap it at the time of judgment. I heard of a millionaire, though he had enough money to survive, he got involved for whatever reason in drug trafficking. He guess, I guess he wanted extra income. He was caught, put in jail, and picture the millionaire, not sitting in a big high back stuffed chair, but in a jail cell. He had a big yarn, long needle, and he was sewing burlap sacks together. His friend came to visit him, put his hands on the icy, cold bars of the cell, peeked his head in and saw his friend. The man standing outside said, You're sewing, huh? The prisoner looked up and said, No, I'm reaping. All that I have sown is ended. This is what I'm reaping for what I have done. He realized it was harvest time. What a man sows, he will also reap. And really, that is the idea of the harvest in the Bible. The harvest is the time of judgment. And here's a picture of the final harvest time. Let me give you a few other portions of Scripture to bear this out. God predicts the final overthrow of the nation of Babylon. Remember, Babylon took over the Jewish nation, and God held them accountable for it. Jeremiah 51:33, God says, The daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor when it's time to thresh her. Yet a little while in the time of her harvest will come. It's not of evangelism to that country. It's judgment. In Isaiah chapter 63, God says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger, trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Then perhaps the most famous book about this whole period of time is Joel. He devotes the whole story to the time of judgment, the time of reaping, the time of harvest, the great tribulation period mostly. And he puts it this way, Put in the sickle, for harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Then we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he predicts the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. But he predicts the judgment that will come as the Messiah, the Son of Man, comes. And John the Baptist says of Jesus, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then there's Jesus Christ, who talked about that final judgment, and he said this, The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. Jesus taught the field of judgment is the world. The harvest, he said, is the end of the age or the end of the world. And here we see a picture, a cameo picture, even before the rest of the judgments ensue in the book of Revelation, 
sort of again like a telescoping of the very end. The chapter opens up with 144,000 standing on Mount Zion, gathered together around the Messiah at the end of the tribulation before the millennium. Now the chapter closes with a gathering of people to be judged for harvest. Let's look at verse 14 to 16, the first vision, the second point in our message, a harvest of distinction. I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, in his hand a sharp sickle. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Notice who the reaper is. It is one like the Son of Man. Now who might that be? Jesus Christ. He's called the Son of Man in Daniel in the Gospels. You say, why does John call him one like the Son of Man? Probably he's making reference to what he already saw. In chapter 1, he sees a vision of the Son of Man. It's Jesus Christ. We already established that at the beginning. And now, after all that he has seen, he sees one like the Son of Man. Like what Daniel saw. What like John sees in chapter 1. The harvest is personally supervised, superintended by this Son of Man. Jesus Christ. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. There are people who say, well, Jesus would never judge. This is what Jesus said. He said, the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Now, that's going to shatter some of our concepts of Jesus, the Sunday school concept, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. That's true, partially. He was meek and mild. He did look upon little children. He was very gracious. He was very loving. But one day he will be the judge of the earth. And here's the picture. Notice he's not carrying an olive branch. He doesn't have a cross to go to Calvary. He comes with a sickle, the implement of reaping the harvest of the earth. You might put it another way. The first time Jesus came to earth, he came as a servant. The second time Jesus comes, it will be a sovereign king. The first time Jesus came to planet earth, he came as one obeying. The second time he comes, he will be the one commanding. The first time Jesus came, he came alone to live with a Jewish couple in an obscure town and Palestine. The second time he comes, he will come with all the angels of heaven and will bear rule over all the earth. The first time he came, he came in humility. The second time he comes, he will come in glorious majesty, as we see here, on a cloud with a crown. The first time he came to seek and to save the lost. The second time he will come to judge and sentence the lost. Or to put it in the image of what we're reading, the first time Jesus came, he came as the sower. The second time he comes, it will be as the reaper. He came sowing seed, he will come reaping the harvest. Notice why in our verse. The angel says, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now I've called this the harvest of distinction, and I'll show you why in a minute. This is a harvest where something is separated, a difference is made. 
Because the word that is used here for ripe is the word dry, withered, overripe, rotten might be a translation. Look at the earth. It's rotten. It's dry. It's withered. And this was a word that was used in reference to the grain harvest, the wheat harvest. The sickle would be taken out and thrust into the dry stalks of wheat and they would be cut and then they would be separated. And so the idea is, look, the harvest is withered. It's over. It is dried. It is time to be picked. It is rotten. There was a guy who was traveling through the country with a buddy of his who lived in the country. This guy from the city, you know, he didn't really know a whole lot about how things grow and work in the country. And he noticed driving by these fields that looked white to him. And he said, what are these fields? What are you growing? He said, that's wheat. He said, wheat? I always thought wheat was golden. You know, amber waves of grain, like the song says. He said, usually it is golden until it's overripe. When it's dry and withered, it turns white and you've got to pick it quickly. Then the man finally understood what Jesus was talking about when he said to his disciples, Look, the harvest fields are white. Judgment is imminent, was the idea. It's time to pick. Well, really, that is the condition of the world, isn't it? It's ripe. It's rotten. It's overripe. Withered, dry. And it will be the condition that marks the world at the time of the end. And the only response God could have to it is to put in a sickle of judgment. Because it's dry, it's withered. It implies that the world will be useless. You might as well hack it down, is the idea of this harvest. It's time to reap, said the angel. Now, I'd like you to turn to a section of Scripture, I think, to understand what this harvest is. Go back to uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, for just a moment. These are parables, kingdom parables, agricultural parables that Jesus told, a few of them. And I believe that the parable that we're about to read is a reference to what we are reading presently in Revelation 14, that little section. Verse 24, another parable, Matthew 13, verse 24, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. When the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now look over the next page or down the page to verse 36 of the same chapter. Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. They didn't get it. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Same reference, same description, the Son of Man. The field is the world. 
The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age or the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I think that parable explains this first vision of the Son of Man on the cloud with a sickle ready to reap the harvest of the earth. It's a judgment of distinction. The separation of tares and wheat. Now what's a tear? A tear is a weed. In fact, it's the bearded darnel, which in ancient times looked just like wheat. Couldn't tell the difference. Even experts could not tell the difference between darnel and wheat at first. At first there was no distinction. You had to wait till they grew. Later on, as there was a maturing, a ripening, you could start making out the differences. By the time of the harvest, it was easy to tell the difference. But to pull up the darnel, to rip up the weeds, could damage the wheat because the darnel would grow so close to the wheat that the roots would intertwine and to pull up a tear you would invariably pull up some wheat. And so the superintendent says, no, 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 wait, leave them alone until the end of the harvest. Why? Because reapers are more experienced than servants and can tell the difference between a true wheat and that which only looks like a wheat meant to deceive a tear. Now that's a picture of where we live. In God's kingdom, even in churches across America, there's God's wheat, but there are also tares sown among the wheat. You know, the devil is a counterfeit, and there's nothing so sacred that the devil will not invade. In fact, I think his MO is the more sacred, the more I'm going to invade it. We have already seen he is the one who has a counterfeit trinity in the tribulation, a counterfeit Christ during that time, a mark meant to mimic the mark that God puts on the heads of his children. All mimicry. And he has fake Christians, tares that are sown among the wheat. Now, we may be tempted. Let's pull out those tares. The disciples were kind of in that mindset. It seems that they wanted the harvest to come now. They wanted to make a separation now. For instance, there was a man in Luke 9 who was casting out demons, and the disciples proudly come to Jesus, and they said, Master, we saw this dude casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him, thinking they're going to get a pat on the back, because he wasn't following with us. Jesus said, don't forbid him. If he's not against us, he's for us. Then there was the time when in Matthew 15, a woman of Canaan, someone outside the Jewish covenant, came to get a, close to Jesus Christ. It says, that she said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. What did the disciples do? They said, Send her away. She's bothering us. Get her out of here. Make a separation. We're Jews. She's not. She's a woman of Canaan. 
Then there was the time in Samaria. Remember, Jesus goes through Samaria. Samaritans did not follow Jesus, and so James and John, called the sons of the fishermen, though Jesus renamed them sons of thunder, they were sons of Zebedee. They came to Jesus and they said, you want us to call fire down from heaven and smoke these Samaritans? In other words, you want us to take out the sickle of judgment now and thrust it in? Jesus said, you do not know what manner of person you are. And he called them sons of thunder, the nuclear brothers, you might say, in modern terms. I can picture these guys, you know, leather robes, spike bands across their wrists. You know, they're God's policemen. They were ready to have the judgment immediately, now. And I think there have been periods in church history when the church has been guilty of that. I think Constantine was guilty of that in the fourth century. He made everybody follow Christ his way or be killed, and many true believers were killed during that time. It was the time during the Middle Ages, the Crusades, where they thought, we better kill Jews and Muslims in the name of Jesus Christ because they're tares. They're not us. Then there was the Spanish Inquisition, which was the Roman Church's response to the Protestant Reformation. And many believers were killed during that time and tortured, exiled. But, and here's the point of Jesus, now is the age not of the sickle of judgment, but of the net of evangelism. We bring people in now. We tell them the gospel of grace. We want the harvest to be the net bringing them in, not the sickle of judgment. Today is a time of sowing, not reaping. There will be a time of reaping. The reapers will be the angels. That will be the harvest at the end of the age. God knows the tares. God knows the wheat. Now, here's the really good news in all of that story. The good news is that in this present age, before the harvest, any tear can become wheat. Any tear, any false believer, any hypocrite, any unbeliever, who would even try to come close to the church, can become God's wheat, so that at the time of harvest they will be separated and kept as his prize. That's the beautiful truth about this. Now, before we get back to Revelation and see the second vision, since we are compared to wheat and unbelievers to tares, or in some cases chaff, have you ever thought how Christians and wheat are similar it's the metaphor Jesus gave. Here's a few areas in which wheat and Christians are very similar. Number one, when wheat ripens, the full rich heads become bowed down with weight. You can always tell that the wheat is ready to pick because the tops of them are bowed. At first they're straight up, at the end they're bowed down. Tares, on the other hand, when they ripen, stand straight up. That's how the expert reapers can tell the difference at the end of the harvest. One is bowed, one is standing up. You say, well, that's wheat, that's not. It looks very similar at first, but it's obvious now. And so it is with Christians. The more they grow in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ, they are bowed down in humility, not in pride. An arrogant person is the mark of a tear, not wheat. In fact, anyone who's come close to God always has that sense of humility, right? When Isaiah saw a vision of God, did he say, I'm going to go on television and tell people about my new book, The Day I Saw God? No, he said, Woe is me, I am undone. And Peter, when he saw that Jesus was God, said, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Paul the Apostle, who once was very arrogant with his Jewish pedigree, said, I am the least of all the saints. 
God has extended grace and mercy to me. It's a mark of wheat. There's the bowing down. There's another mark. The hot sun ripens the grain of the wheat. In fact, the hotter the sun gets, the quicker the ripening process gets. Or you might say, the better it gets. So it is with the believer. The trials of life, the hot sun of affliction, beats down upon the believer's life and makes him a better person, more valuable, more useful because of the affliction. That's why P.T. Forsythe said, rather than praying for pain's removal, we ought to pray for pain's conversion. God used this, ripen me, make me more useful and valuable. There's a third way, and that is as wheat ripens upward, it dies downward. Let me explain. The head becomes ripe. The riper the head becomes, the stock which holds it, and the root which supports it dies. So it has less of a grip on the earth, you might say, as it is ripening the time of the end. And I think that's a beautiful description of the Christian. The more we grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, the less earthbound we become. The things of the earth grow strangely dim, like the song we sometimes sing around here. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely what dim in the light of his glory and grace. All a picture of wheat, and it's the picture Jesus chose of his own. Let's go back to Revelation now. See the second vision, which is our third point here in the text. And that is a harvest of destruction. It's sort of the same truth that Jesus just uncovered, but he's talking here about the utter destruction, the treading down of the winepress of God's wrath for unbelievers. The harvest of destruction. Verse 17, Another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, And he cried out with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came up out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles, for 1,600 furlongs. This is the second harvest. It is different from the first. The first was the reaping or the harvest of the grain. This is the harvest of the grapes. The wine press is mentioned. Now, the vintage or the harvest of the grapes takes place in the summer from July to September. In the summer was the time of the harvest for the grapes. People would leave the village. You'd see them all over the grape fields. They'd be picking, putting them into buckets, taking them to the wine press. They would cast all of the grapes. They wouldn't separate them. They wouldn't say, good grape, bad grape. They'd just throw them all in. Then a whole bunch of people would get in this wine press, which was a cistern cut out of rock with a channel and a hole. The juice could drain through it and be collected into vats. And people would just jump, dance all over the grapes. And the juice would be spattering all the way up, several feet, all over their clothes, all over the other rocks and the surrounding places where these things were being tread upon. That's really the idea of this harvest. It's not a separation. It's just a total wipeout. It is a total threshing, consummation of the wicked. Now, notice the angel makes request from where? The altar. The angel comes out of the altar, and the angel has power over what? Fire. 
Now, does that ring a bell? We've already uncovered in the book of Revelation. Remember in chapter 6, there was somebody under the altar, it says. A whole bunch of people. They were the martyrs. The people who had to sacrifice their lives during the tribulation. And it says in Revelation 6, And they opened the fifth seal. And as he opened the fifth seal, I heard the voice of those under the altar crying with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, until you revenge our blood upon those who are on the earth? There's a cry coming from under the altar in heaven. Then do you remember chapter 8? The angel comes out from the altar having fire in his hand and he casts it to the earth. Remember that? Here we have the angel who has power over fire, presumably the same angel, coming out from the altar. Now what does all this mean? Well, again, remember, this is Old Testament. This is biblical language. Twice a day in the tabernacle and in the temple was a time of sacrifice, morning and evening. And each time the priest would go to the outer altar, the brass altar, where there was always a fire going on, and he would take fire from the brass altar, put it into a little golden censer bucket, walk into the holy place, put incense on it, and incense would rise up. And that indicated the prayers of the saints. In fact, as he was waving this censer and incense was going up, the people were outside at that time praying to God. So the symbol of prayer in the holy place symbolized the actual praying on the outside. Well, what's my point? The angel comes from the altar, has power over fire, and he says to this other angel, do it. It's time to reap. In other words, this time of judgment is the answer to the prayers of God's people. They prayed for it. They've longed for it. They've said, thy kingdom come for so long. They have suffered at the hands of it. And now, in response to the prayers, God comes by his angel to judge the earth. He's saying, wait a minute. Why would anybody pray for judgment? Nobody would do that. No true Christian. You would only say that if you've never been persecuted as a lifestyle. Living in America, I'm sure that you would say that. That would be your sentiment. But these are people under the altar who have suffered at the hands, who have watched God in his mercy go on and on and be gracious with the world. And they say, ah, I got a question. How long will you let this happen before you do something about it? And they cry out for it. You know, picture it this way. Do you ever read the newspaper and just get upset? You think, why do I even get this paper? It's just bad news. Murder, terrorism, rape. When you read about an adult raping a four-year-old girl, do you get ticked off? Does it make your blood boil? It ought to. Okay, now think of God seeing every news headline in every city of every country every day and all the hidden stuff that never gets published from the beginning of time to the end. Now you wonder, God, when are you going to do something? If you're really loving, you ought to judge people. Don't you think? You think it would be loving if God said, Hey, Hitler, listen, come on into heaven. You're welcome. After all, you were a little bit deranged. You were a product of your environment. I know you killed six million people and... Buchenwald, Dachau, Auschwitz, but hey, I can overlook such stuff. Come on in. I wouldn't want to worship and serve a God like that unless there was repentance on the part of the person who sinned. And so God will judge in response to his saints. 
Notice the expression here because it's fully ripe. It's a different expression, not ripe or overripe. It's fully ripe. This is a word used of grapes. They're at the point of bursting. There's so much juice in them, they're ready to burst. They're prime. It can't wait any longer. And so he reaps the vine of the earth. Now, in the Old Testament, the vine is Israel, right? In the New Testament, the true vine is who? Jesus Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches, John 15. This is the vine of the earth. This is the fruit of all the earth has produced. The wickedness of the earth for centuries will be finally judged. Now, the spurting of the grape juice, if you were to watch a harvest, if you ever get over to the Middle East and watch them do this, or even in places of Europe, the trampling of the grapes... The idea, there's so much juice that flows into the vats and spatters everywhere up several feet high. It looks like a bloodbath, just the color and the brilliance. And that's the imagery. This spattering of the juice is like the spattering of the blood at that great and last battle that will take place in the time of the end. Um, it's mentioned in verse 20, the wine press was trampled outside the city. It's best to see that as the city of Jerusalem, by the way. I don't know if you understand, but in the Bible, Jerusalem is the center of everything. North in the Bible is north of Jerusalem. South in the Bible is south of Jerusalem. East and west have Jerusalem as the focal point. The city, as John would write and his people would listen, they would get the idea this is none other than the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to read about it in chapter 16 and chapter 19 of Revelation this battle of Armageddon gathered outside of Jerusalem as the nations of the world fall upon Jerusalem to kill her, but God preserves and protects them. The mileage, it says, is, or the measurement here, 1,600 furlongs, or in Greek, stadii, about 180 to 200 miles, which is incidentally the measurement of Israel north to south. If you take the Jordan Valley from Megiddo southward, from Ezralon down to Edom, 180 miles, 200 miles. In other words, nations will gather in Israel at the very end of time for a battle. But it's really not a battle. It's a wine press. You know, people talk about the battle of Armageddon. It won't be a battle. It's a wipeout. There's no struggle. Jesus isn't saying, call in extra troops. This is too hard. He will come again and tread like a wine press and the juice spattering, it'll be a total wipeout. As he comes back, that is his second coming. This is what Zechariah says in Zechariah 14. He describes it, verses 2 and 3. I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. And then it says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. What we see here then in the second vision is a prelude to Armageddon. It's outside the city. The measurement is given. The blood is predicted will flow up to the horse's bridle. What a frightening picture. I meet people all the time who say, you know, I don't even want to read the book of Revelation. It's so frightening. It's just, it's like a Twilight Zone episode. Well, I guess that is really my point. The world is in for a frightening future, but they don't know it. But you do. Think about that. Folks, think about that. We have information that they need to know about. They need to know that there's a God who loves them, who sent his son 
to stop people from the destiny of destruction. That's why he came. That's what this age is, the age of grace. But there's coming a time when that is all ended and the sickle is put in the hand and the angel says, go for it. It's ripe. It's rotten. Hack it down. Trample it under in the winepress of God. You know, we live in a nation full of people trying to figure out the future, right? Horoscopes, 1-800-PSYCHO lines at night. Find out your future. We'll let you know. Here is the future. It's all written about. There's no guess to this. It's detailed for us. And we need to be about the Father's business, right? You've heard the, the term, face the music, right? A lot of you don't know where it comes from, however. In ancient Japan, a couple hundred years ago, that's pretty ancient, there was a guy who was in the orchestra for the emperor. He couldn't play anything, though. He couldn't read a note of music. But because he was a man of money and influence, he was allowed to sit in the second row of the orchestra with a flute in his hand, and the time the band played, he'd pucker up his lips and put the flute high and fake it like he was playing. Turned the music, but he couldn't read it. That deception worked for two years until the conductor was gone. He died. A new conductor took his place and now demanded every one of the musicians to audition personally. Well, this guy feigned sickness, didn't show up for a couple weeks. The conductor said, I demand, if you're going to play in this orchestra, that I know your level of ability, you have to audition. The doctor said, there's nothing wrong with this guy. And so he had to sit in front of that new conductor and confess that he was a fake. He couldn't face the music that was in front of him. He couldn't read the notes. One day, everyone will stand before God, the judge. God will say, in effect, what song have you got? What's your tune? And the world, many of them, will not be able to face the music. Well, we know that. We know that information. We read about it every week. We study it every week. And now it's time that we share it. No one will be able to hide in the crowd in that day. It's a wonderful harvest now of salvation before that great and horrible harvest then. Father, we thank you for the information that we have received. I'm sure there are parts of the Bible that some of us would like to say isn't there or not read, but you put it all here. You gave us insight in so many places by prophets, by your own son, by Paul, by John, and all of this literature of what is coming on the earth. We don't have to guess it. We know it, and it's time that we share it. Help us, Lord, to do that. And Father, I pray that if some have gathered this morning that it would be a gathering of salvation harvest, the net, rather than the sickle, and that many would come to you to become your wheat. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 In Jesus' name.